0: Street, the court. I'm Judge Martin.
1: Veterans Court is one of the specialty courts here in Collier County. We have two others: drug court and mental health court. If you're a veteran with a mental illness or a substance abuse problem, you still go to Veterans Court, because that's the one that can connect you to the services for U.S. veterans.
0: Good afternoon, How are you doing? Good, Governor.
1: What's been going through
0: your head these last few days preparing for today?
2: Just uh we're thankful all the help from your court and uh, people, you know, yourself and the LC people, the mentors, so on, and probation officers are helpful, but my wife, of course, family, and so on. But.
0: Absolutely. I, I think your wife very much, uh, I'm glad you're able to be here, of course, and very much deserves a, a large share of the credit for support and, and um, partnership through a really tough time.
1: A little more than a year ago, this man was being tasered by deputies following a severe mental break. He was Baker Acted at the time, which in Florida means he was taken into protective custody for a mental health evaluation. And he was charged with felony and misdemeanor crimes. But rather than sentence him to jail or prison time, he was instead given the option to go to treatment court. And like so many people in Collier County struggling with substance abuse or mental health problems, that was the best way for him to ultimately get help. You are listening to Sworn Statement, a podcast by the Collier County Sheriff's Office, exploring local cases and public safety issues, all unfolding right here in Southwest Florida. Season 2, Episode 2 is called Breaking the Cycle. This is a good day in treatment court because this man is about to graduate after more than a year of weekly court visits. That might sound like a lot, but after his 2018 arrest, he was facing felony charges. So when he learned that he qualified for treatment court, he chose that route instead of possible jail or prison time.
0: But I expressed to you last week, and I'll, I'll say again, I've been um, very impressed and very appreciative of the way you've handled this. Um, I know it's been a difficult situation, and uh, I frankly can only imagine uh, how difficult it's been for you and for your wife to come through this. But you have shown a lot of grace um, and uh, in the way that you have
1: come through it. And this is Judge Janice Martin. If you haven't figured it out by now, she's not like a regular judge. And treatment court is not like regular court. Judge Martin is one click away from becoming one of those viral video sensations. For the same reason that we love to see cats cuddling baby chicks or police officers giving shoes to the homeless, there's a certain warm, fuzzy feeling you get when a judge is nice to a defendant. It's unexpected, it defies stereotypes, and it earns those Facebook comments like, just when I lost all faith in humanity. I think I mentioned last week,
0: I've had other, other uh, persons in difficult situations, and uh, oftentimes they can't resist the uh, temptation to complain about it or uh, express that they feel it's unfair, etc., and, and you've never done that. Um, and I think that speaks, I think it proudly represents your service. Uh, it shows uh, some of your background in service and, and the humility that comes with that. Uh, and the dignity that comes with that. So I just want to express again that I'm appreciative of it. It didn't go unnoticed.
1: During this graduation ceremony, Judge Martin came down from her bench and presented a plaque to the man. The man was flanked by a group of seven veteran mentors, all wearing blue polos with an embroidered American flag on the chest. Judge Martin read a proclamation, said a bunch of nice things, then shook his hand. I will uh, uh,
0: congratulate you on successfully completing our Veterans Treatment Court program. We'll give you just a a small token with our signatures on it to uh, remember us by. And hopefully you'd agree this is um, a good place, particularly if people need a little extra support to get through something better your honor. Good, good. Well, I hope that those tokens all have the the meaning that they are intended to have. Uh, Not to remind you of something that was negative, but rather to remind you of something that was positive. Good luck, and I'll see you in a couple of months. Great
2: job. Ryan, can we get a picture? Yes, sir.
1: (laughs) Usually in a courtroom, the bailiffs are there to hand off paperwork and keep a nice distance between the judge and the defendant. So watching a judge come down from on high like this is like seeing a metaphor in action. It's all about talking to folks at their level and meeting halfway.
0: <laughs>
1: you see it too when she talks to mental health court participants who are struggling, like the woman who recently relapsed and missed some appointments.
0: How are you doing this week? I'm doing better. We've missed you. Well, I understand you were uh, you were where it sounds like you needed to be for at least the short term. Yeah. How are you feeling? I'm feeling alright. Um, I'm feeling a little displaced. I'm all the way out in Golden Gate now, which stinks. Um, okay. Uh, now I'm away, especially with how i have got to go, you know, to probation three times a week, a get over here. It's, and then all my friends in recovery are right around here, and all the meetings I was going to was right around here, so I got to ride my bike to to everywhere. I finally felt like I had a home out here. So okay. I'm, I feel like I've been displaced. Okay. okay. And I'm a little embarrassed by everything, but I'm, like, hopeful, you okay. know. Um, it kind of sucks that it all happened, but it did. Okay. Well, let me let me try to help with at least part of that. The embarrassment part, ditch it. Doesn't do either of us any good. they not going to be embarrassment or shame in this room. Okay? We're really, really, really clued in on that. You know that'll be part of what keeps you sick. So, pitch that. There is no shame. You've got nothing to be embarrassed of. You, you did what we asked you to do, which is if you do suffer a relapse, you communicate right away and be honest about it. That's huge. I can appreciate how much courage that took. Thank you. Okay? So we don't celebrate the relapse. I'm sorry you went through it because I know, frankly, at this point there's no fun in any of that anymore, is there? No, it hasn't. It's painful. But I want to focus on the positive, which is you handled it the right way. Your case manager scrambled around to get you connected with something to at least get you some short-term support, and we're yep. working on a game plan. You've got to keep hanging on to that honesty because it is your lifeline. Okay, It quite possibly is saving your life because it helped us stop something and assist you and so forth. So I couldn't be more pleased with the way you handled it even though I'm, I'm sorry you went through the bad situation. Thank you. All right, so...
1: But that's not to say it's all rainbows and puppies. For one of the participants who came to a recent routine court date, Judge Martin had to send a firm message. The man had violated his court-ordered curfew again.
0: You may at once be the cleanest-cut guy that ever sits in this room and the one who faces the most time in prison might not look like it on the outside, but you're the guy that is in the biggest trouble in this room, potentially. You have the most to lose from a mistake. I don't know if you realize that, and I don't often make comparisons because everybody in here is an individual, I but that. I don't know if you really fully understand what you face if you violate this probation, of which the curfew is a critical component. You know that you're looking at four years in prison on the low end?
1: Judge Martin ended up sending him to jail for a few days.
0: So let me cut to the chase. The, the, uh, the team has talked a little bit about your circumstances, about the violation of the curfew, um, about the, uh, how that fits against the big picture. You have done well with us. You haven't had a lot of prior problems, but um, you do have really high stakes. And if I somehow don't manage to get your full attention as a result of this, then you risk a really, really, really bad outcome. So what the team has proposed as a sanction for the curfew is that I would bring you into custody. I would release you on Monday morning. You would go report immediately to Mr. Arvin um, and pick back up where you left off. Your curfew is going to be adjusted. You mess with the curfew, you lose the, the privilege of the, of the later curfew. We're going to go back until further order to an 8 o'clock curfew. Okay. Get your feet back under you. Build up the trust of the team again. Get your credibility back, and that curfew will get extended. But until further order, it's going to tighten all the way down to 8 o'clock. Okay. Those are the two things that we are uh, proposing, and my prayer, everyone's prayer, is whatever that ends up being, five, six days in there, is four years you don't do as a result of making another mistake like this.
1: Judge Martin has worked in courtrooms for about 10 years now, and she's been with the treatment court since 2015. She's learned a lot in that time about how to maintain professionalism while exercising compassion, and she said that treatment court has a much different feel to it than regular criminal or civil courts.
0: On the one hand, I am trying to establish um, a sense of connection with the participant, a sense that I am invested in their success, because I am, but uh, it is also imperative that I never uh, allow them to forget that I am a judge, and that at any given moment, I may be called upon to hold them accountable if they step out of line in some way. I don't ever want the person to feel like I have snuck up on them because I was too much their buddy along the way and and now I'm coming down on them. So I enjoy the challenge of trying to really walk that line between expressing compassion and enthusiasm, which do come pretty naturally for me, but also um, always, always ensuring that they know I stand ready to hold them accountable and that I will never step away from that, not even for a moment. We know that shame has absolutely no positive value. Embarrassment has absolutely no positive value. That was a a mental switch for me from where I started out. I used to think, well, we should just point out how silly it was that they made this mistake. Fortunately, I've been uh, corrected on that. So we we try not to bring any sort of um, shame or embarrassment in. It's more about clear communication. It's about uh, letting the participant know that you're confident they can do better, um, pushing them to move past this, to, to own it, and then move past it so they can get back to getting better. Um, and so, with rare exception, and, and it's really only if the participant's getting unruly, with rare exception, am I ever going to express any kind of anger? Um, I, I generally try to communicate it in a way that lets them know we are unwavering in our commitment to accountability. But unless the person is being kicked out of court, and really, even if they're being kicked out of court, I'm gonna continue to express confidence that they're capable of more than what they're showing us. Hands down, the most difficult aspect of being a treatment court judge is the moment when you have to impose discipline because first you're relying upon the team to advise you as to what's an appropriate expectation. We have widely varying capability from one participant to the next. And so I rely in that case on the clinicians to tell me, can we expect more, or is this about what, what this person's best behavior would look like? Uh, can they manage a, a curfew? Law enforcement helps advise us quite a bit about whether this person is struggling or whether this person has actually been doing quite well With and this is an isolated type
1: of an issue. Treatment courts are definitely radical in their approach. But the shift did not happen overnight. And while Collier County has been one of the early adopters, we were not the first.
0: The first ever treatment court was drug court out of Miami-Dade County in 89. And Judge Bill Blackwell uh, was our chief judge at the time in 1999. He had learned of drug court at a National Judicial College uh, seminar he attended. And he came back from that and... Was uh, very interested in establishing a drug court for Collier County and eventually the 20th Judicial Circuit. Very soon after that, uh, the State Attorney's Office uh, agreed to staff the court and be a partner in the court, and it's been a it has steadily grown into a very powerful partnership ever
1: since then. Here in Collier County, we decided on three treatment courts. There's drug court, mental health court, and veterans court. If your primary problem is a substance abuse problem, you go to the first option. If you're mainly struggling with a mental health problem, you're directed to the second. And if you're dealing with one or both of those issues, but also happen to be a former member of the armed services, you go to Veterans Court, where you're connected to federal, state, and local resources designed just for US veterans.
0: All three of the courts have essentially the same footprint. And really, um, there's a movement to standardize these courts across the state and really across the country. They've been very grassroots uh, up until fairly recently, but they do all have the same basic intention of uh, having those key components, a multidisciplinary team, treatment as the uh, primary goal, um, identification of appropriate individuals, uh, to direct that treatment and hope to interrupt that, uh, that cycle. These persons have been identified as persons in need of treatment and for whom uh, intensive treatment and supervision has a good chance of interrupting what might otherwise be a revolving door effect with the criminal justice system.
1: In regular court, there is one judge. In treatment court, the judge is just one member of a team of treatment professionals and law enforcement. In our case, that includes probation officers, representatives from the David Lawrence Center, and deputies from the agency's Mental Health Bureau. Each group is intimately familiar with the individuals in treatment court, and aside from the judge, they often see defendants outside of the courtroom. Folks are referred to the treatment courts in a variety of ways.
0: Sometimes the arresting officer will put a sentence at the end of her report that says, It did appear to me in my contact with this person that they could benefit from some sort of a treatment court. I've actually seen that in reports, and of course, it warms my heart because that's the result of CIT training. Your uh, jail reentry team is very good at. Um, at leveraging their skills and helping us know who's in the jail. Those folks, thanks to your jail staff, they're getting our handbooks, our brochures. Your staff is uh, actively communicating with our state attorney's office and public defender. Our referral form is on the web, so family members can make a referral. Of course, defense attorneys are probably the most common. Um, The defendant himself or herself can make a referral to the treatment court.
1: There are some legal boundaries for eligibility. You can't get into treatment court if you've been charged in a homicide or a sex crime, for example. But individuals facing other types of misdemeanor and felony charges are accepted into both mental health court and veterans court. Drug court is the exception. In drug court, only individuals who are facing felony charges are accepted. And that's because those individuals show a much higher success rate in treatment court Than those who are facing misdemeanor drug charges.
0: And our courts work best with persons who have a high risk to uh, become incarcerated again and a high need of treatment. We actually are encouraged to stay away from low-hanging fruit. Persons who could probably right their ship without intensive treatment could actually be harmed by an intensive program like ours. We can actually make people worse. When we aim our resources at the, the most clinically appropriate, we get better results. It took me a long time to wrap my head around that. There's a great phrase called the gift of desperation. And the reality is that for a lot of our population, they don't really get that until they've gone to a certain level. And so the first time offender, relatively young, relatively unscathed criminal defendant is usually going to be much harder to shepherd through our program than somebody who has been there and done that and knows there is nothing good going on uh, outside of the rooms and and is ready to really make the complete change that we're going to demand of them.
1: Katie Burroughs is the Forensic Supervisor for the David Lawrence Center. She explained how treatment works once someone agrees to enter one of our specialty courts.
3: Typically, they're not engaged in treatment services at the time of the arrest, so we will refer them for a clinical assessment to David Lawrence Center. They go to our access center, which is our like single point of where they get their clinical assessment, which will then verify a diagnosis with a master's-level clinician and they'll also recommend them for the program. For mental health court, it would be, do they have a serious and persistent mental illness? Uh, Number one, is that a primary, because it must be to come in the program, and then if so, what are the recommendations for their treatments? So that's done, and then we go to the state attorney and say, yes, this person is clinically appropriate, they will then make a legal contract stating, outlining exactly what that person must do in order to successfully complete the program. Then treatment will develop a service plan basically stating what the client has to do from a treatment standpoint in order to complete. And that's kind of what holds them in for treatment to monitor. Um, and we we are monitoring has to be done every six months a review of that service plan. Um, and we can change it at any time if their treatment needs change.
1: The treatment courts demand a lot more from their participants than regular court. In regular court, you might show up once every few weeks for some housekeeping before your trial or your sentencing hearing. And then you'll serve your sentence, whether that's behind bars or on probation. In treatment court, you're going to court once a week, and you're subjected to random and frequent drug screenings. You also have to attend mandatory treatment and therapy outside of court. The whole process typically lasts about a year. Some folks weigh their options and decide that regular court is just easier.
0: People don't get well in jails or hospitals. They get well at home. So when we can, when our court works best, someone is able to regain their best capabilities in the community to support themselves and lead a productive life.
1: Nancy Dauphiné is the CEO of the David Lawrence Center. I asked her whether she thought mandated treatment was as effective as treatment a patient seeks on their own. Keep in mind that mental health court is a voluntary program. But with the option of avoiding jail time packed in, it might seem as though treatment court is somehow used as a bargaining chip.
4: I think that what you really see is maybe there's more of an external locus of control or external motivation or extrinsic motivation to say okay well if I don't go to if I don't go to my doctor's appointment I'm going one back up in jail so I might as well go how do we help move that to an intrinsic motivation to where you're going because you just want to get better Um, and you know from what I've seen some of the the research supports that even court mandated treatment can be very effective yeah, it's like you got your your springform pan around the cheesecake mold and you hope that, you know, by keeping folks engaged with that extrinsic motivation, eventually you can take the, che- you know, the springform pan off and you have a beautiful cheesecake, right? So I don't know, it's a crazy kind of analogy, but long-term engagement and recovery correlates with better outcomes. So whatever's going to help somebody stay in treatment longer is going to help improve the outcome.
1: So far, we've talked in generalities about why jail time doesn't help someone with mental health or substance abuse problems to recover. But now is a good time to dive into that a bit deeper. Nancy said that for people with mental health problems, jail can be another traumatic experience.
4: Being in jail can be very boring. There's a lot of free time. And that unstructured time it's hard for people to not go up in their head around that. And so for folks that have obsessive thoughts that might be prone to, I don't know, paranoia, obsessions, depression, negative self-talk, I mean, that's just going to be very, can be very overwhelming for folks. Not to mention folks with more serious persistent mental illness who might have a psychotic disorder, who may have difficulty distinguishing reality from, you know, from delusions.
1: Being in jail can affect your sleep cycles and it changes your hygiene routines. And Nancy points out that you can't control the lights, the temperature, or the noise level. Your physical activity is limited, so you don't always get the release from the types of exercises that you're used to, and you can't get outdoors when you want to. You're surrounded by strangers all the time, and you don't get to decide what's for dinner or breakfast or lunch, even if there are certain diets that help you manage certain conditions, like depression.
4: You know, folks don't have the the freedom of movement. I mean, that's the definition of it, right? You've lost your civil liberty and you you can't come and go when you please. So to not have that ability to take care of oneself, that can all lead to agitation. It can lead to becoming aggressive because of their, you know, they're afraid. So in so many levels, it's hard to really manage well. Um, In fact, you know, on the contrary, it seems like the symptoms are exacerbated in a jail setting.
1: That was definitely true for Jake. We last left off with Jake as he was confessing to the bank robbery, and we told you that he would go on to commit a prescription drug crime while on probation. Eventually, he got directed to mental health court, but for a time, he was in jail. Remember Lieutenant Leslie Weidenhammer? She oversees the agency's mental health bureau, and she remembers seeing Jake while he was in jail. Most
2: of us knew that he was decompensating down the jail, and I remember going down to talk to him on the medical unit and talking to the officers also they said hey look he's he does nothing but lay there with a sheet around his head all the time and i said is he making any phone calls is he up doing anything they said no and i remember trying to get him to talk to me and he he was so sick that he couldn't even talk to me and i'm not talking physically sick he was so me- mentally sick um It broke my heart because I knew the whole time he just kept saying my kids my kids my kids they expect me to be around My kid has a baseball game That breaks my heart
5: I was kept in the medical unit where it's just you you, they never turn the lights off and you're just sitting there I mean it was I don't understand why they don't turn the lights off, but um, So it was it was just a long. I mean it, it didn't even I mean it started to just drag out so and then suddenly I signed a paper. Next thing I know, I'm in mental health court, which was extremely positive, obviously. Your head is kind of spinning from the just the process of getting there. I mean, from getting arrested and then, you know, your family, all this, trying to adjust and then, you know, trying to figure out what's going to happen. I mean, with a, a thing like mental health court, I wouldn't have any reason to know it even existed before I got arrested. So, um, you know, you're thinking catastrophically about the ramifications of your actions once you start to think clearly again you know so to even hear of a program like that it actually seemed kind of surreal and then the judge yourself judge martin she's fantastic i mean she wants you to succeed but holds you accountable and the repetition of going every week i found was very important i was upset when it ended i didn't think i i i I would be honest with you because i I thought it would be way harder for me to be successful because my probation didn't end at the same time and I that was there if I had one complaint, that would be my complaint. You know, like if you want five years of probation, then keep me on mental health court for five years. I do very well with routine. And when it's suddenly just like, hey, you, you know, so, uh, uh, but it's on it me to, to do well. And I'm doing well now. It was just a transition, it was a tough transition. That's all. leaving But I found mental health court to be very positive. It was very hands on. And as you want as you start to get sick of it, they start, they take it off a little bit and stretch out the times you have to come to court. But the people were really legitimate people. I mean, they were good people that didn't want you to fail, but if you did, they caught you on it. They didn't, like, do things to make you fail. I still am very thankful to the whole process. I mean, it was a long process. I mean, it's still underway. I mean, I'm still, I'm still on probation. From the adjustments of trying to adjust from leaving jail and, and being on these types of programs that I'd never fathomed, not even be on. Well, I'd do it again, obviously.
1: Jake wrapped up his probation shortly after we recorded this interview. So he was on the tail end of that sentence when he agreed to do an interview with me, despite not being totally fond of talking about his past.
5: I'm doing it because I owe Mental Health Court. It's the only reason I'm why I would what I would be here. <laughs> I'm doing it because I feel like I owe Mental Health Court. It's altruistic for me to try to give back in some way. And in a tight little closet that nobody sees me, this is about as comfortable as I get giving back. So it's learning how to live your life with whatever you're carrying around. And Mental Health Court definitely gave me the chance to do that.
1: Jake said that a few years ago, he would not have believed he could have achieved the normalcy he enjoys today. And in some ways, he believes that getting through a series of successes and failures has ultimately helped him learn to manage life on a daily basis with his condition. And mental health court was a part of that.
5: I mean, I, I certainly wish it didn't follow me around. I guess, but at the same time, it enables me to to use my past experiences for for future good. I live as good a life as I could have ever hoped for. I mean, I'm, 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 my routine revolves around my kids. My, during the week, it's their school and sports, and the weekend, it's more sports, soccer, and you know, we were a baseball family forever, but now he's into lacrosse, so. So we're doing that. It's it's groceries, uh, you know, upkeeping my house, and you know, so it's just the same stuff you would do. I, I work at a place called Nami a couple of days a week that I really enjoy it. I'm looking to do some more with them, so. It's it's all stuff that uh, makes me feel good, too, and it's a lot, and the stuff I get to do socially applies everything we were talking about, you know, which is even more fulfilling. I mean, like, being at a place like the Sarah Ann Center with a bunch of peers is really, really rewarding to me, you know, and, and some of them I know from tougher times, you know. So my kids are doing great, and that's that's my number one, obviously. I'm finally, my, my mom's happy, so that's a, that's a big <laughs> one to me, too, so... And then I didn't let a bunch of people down that gave me a, a chance. I mean, I definitely struggled after my chance, but it, it was a part of a very long journey that that got me to a point that I can actually not be, like, a burden on society. Even if they had just, like, you know, Jesse smollett me and dropped the charges, I, I, that would have been horrible, you know. I would have been floundering out there. like So, yeah, the program was very, very important to me.
1: It all came down to getting Jake out of jail and into treatment.
2: Once we were finally able to get him out, seeing how he grew through that whole process, reconnecting with his treatment, um, some of the treatment that he received that worked very, very well for him, seeing him being able to organize his life again and get on that track and on that road. He's become an advocate now, where when I first met him there was no way he could be an advocate. So seeing that gives hope to me and many of the other officers that are out there that we know that there are people who are going to be okay, eventually. Seeing him do so well, he's working, he's with his kids, you know, he's, I was talking to him out in the hallway, you know, I'm getting ready, doing the paperwork for my son to go to college. That's important. It's important. We could have, from the treatment court setting, just said we're done with him. Um, you basically, we're removing you from mental health court and we're not going to help you anymore. What good would that have done? <laughs>
1: Commander Doris Kennedy oversees housing for the Naples Jail Center. When someone is booked into the jail on criminal charges, it's up to corrections officers to care for individuals with mental health or substance abuse problems. Like our deputies in the field, the staff here has undergone CIT training, and they know what kinds of signs to look for in individuals who need treatment.
6: When you come into the facility, the medical nurses do a pretty intense um, questionnaire that's set to identify anybody that may have any type of mental illness problems.
1: That questionnaire also aims to identify folks with developmental problems or those in need of care for dementia, chronic illness, or autism. If you're flagged for any of these, you'll be sent to the medical unit for a more intense review, which is also where inmates with signs of mental health problems will have an additional screening.
6: They're going to ask if you have a history of suicide, um, if you've ever experienced, like, depression, anxiety. Is there suicide in your family? Are you feeling helpless or hopeless right now? It's It's an extreme series of questions.
1: Inmates with mental health problems will be connected to the appropriate resources and medications. But because jail can be a traumatic experience for many inmates, Commander Kennedy is also keenly aware of the need for constant supervision of an inmate's mental status.
6: The philosophy that we've adopted at the jail is inmate behavior management, but that involves you interacting with the inmates so that you can know the temperature of what's going on in your housing area. Maybe I've been in jail for 120 days, and in this 120 days, I've lost my car. I'm worried about my kids. My husband or my wife is going to leave me, so I didn't start off having a mental health issue, but now I may have a mental health issue. Somebody that may be pacing or not really getting along with others and sometimes it's so bad where they'll just tell you I'm thinking about hurting myself or maybe I'm thinking about hurting others or being withdrawn from the population or they really start acting out where they're not following the rules and it's not you know not behavioral because some stuff that happens in jail is purely behavioral but some things are not and we don't Get to decide if it is. We we send it to our people that have been trained to identify if it's a duck. It's quacking like a duck. Is it a duck? Somebody may tell you they're hearing voices. You're going through on your jail checks on the night shift, and it's two o'clock in the morning, and you got somebody that's still sitting up, leaning up against the cell bars, or you got a guy that's pacing back and forth in the cell. You know, just being cognizant and aware of the things that are not normal. You know, behaviors. When you interact and you know what's going on with those inmates, you're better apt to know if they're experiencing some type of episode or something that's not normal. Some of the units, like the medical units, we have the blue, which is supposed to be calming. It's like a sky blue is supposed to be calming in our cells where someone would be strict suicide, which is to help. We also have in our male mental health unit, which is normally what we've been seeing males come in with dementia and Alzheimer's, we have like a sage green, which is supposed to be calming for them. You got the courts, you got probation, you got the treatment in the community, and you got the jail and the road working together. It's almost like a big safety net.
1: The mental health screenings and training not only help to get inmates the proper treatment while incarcerated, they're also the way in which many inmates learn about mental health court. Commander Kennedy and her staff hand out brochures explaining the system. They explain that it's voluntary and they're upfront about the amount of work it requires. But they also tout its benefits and the fact that many services are offered for free or at discounted rates and that they're tailored to each individual.
6: You you cannot beat it if you're sick and you need help and you're caught up in the criminal justice system, this is how you're going to get your continuum of care and you're going to get yourself out of the just a spider web that you might be in. And you're going to build resources and learn things that can keep you well for life because you're connected with resources. They're going to get you the treatment that you need and you're going to be able to take care of you.
1: Like so many programs with roving variables and human factors, it can be difficult to measure success. For Commander Kennedy, it's mostly anecdotal but no less symbolic. There's one story she tells her officers all the time about a woman who came into the jail with obvious mental health problems. And this woman used to stay up at night screaming. By day, officers had to hand her soap and shampoo and convince her to shower. This woman got help through a treatment court. And when Commander Kennedy saw her in court a few weeks later, she was unrecognizable. In fact, Commander Kennedy had said hi to the woman while waiting in the lobby and hadn't even realized who she was speaking to. Commander Kennedy said it's like seeing someone at rock bottom and then comparing that to their best.
6: It kind of reminds me of like the person that goes down the beach throwing a starfish back in the ocean and you gets got to save them one at a time. We can't save everybody, but if we save one starfish at a time, we're good. It makes you sleep at night. <laughs>
1: I spoke with another man who was six months into drug court when I saw him coming out of a group therapy session at the David Lawrence Center. He said he had a drug problem for eight years and had tried to get sober on and off during that time. But it wasn't until his first arrest, when he was facing prison time for burglary and drug charges, that he was able to right the ship. He took the drug court option to avoid jail time, and if he successfully completes the program, he'll also get a chance to have his felony convictions scrubbed from his record
5: come to David Lawrence three times a week or a group, which are two hours. We're required for an AA or NACA, any meeting every night, and then uh, random drug testing. I, I'm drug tested probably about four to five times a week because I'm still in the early phase. Once you progress farther and the drug testings get less, the, um, I go see the judge every week. You know, that goes down to every other week and stuff like that.
1: He's had a couple setbacks and one tacked a few more months onto the whole drug court process for him. But right now, the structure is what's working for him.
5: I'm at a point where if I didn't have this structure still, it probably wouldn't be, it wouldn't be good. You know, getting sober is the first part, but then it's a whole change in attitude and, you know, the way of living and, you know, trying to be just a better person in general.
1: Next time on Sworn Statement.
5: Voices just pop out of nowhere, you know, crazy voices. You know, male, female, whatever. Yeah, I'm off on medication right now.
6: So don't have any No, I went
5: yesterday, so they tried to get me in there yesterday, but I'm waiting for Wednesday to come, you know. It's coming Wednesday.
1: Sworn Statement is a production of the Collier County Sheriff's Office under the direction of Sheriff Kevin Rambosk. It is produced, written, and recorded by me, your host, Christine Gill. Listen on SoundCloud and wherever you find podcasts.